0: At a certain point in time, you want to assess what sort of persona type the researcher is. Are they passive, reluctant inventor, or are they active inventor and wanting to be involved? The sort of support and the sort of people you introduce them to is very different if they're You know, an academic that wants to hand over their IP for someone else to commercialise, or if they're an academic that wants to be the CEO of the company when it spins out. You would treat those two individuals very differently. You would provide different programmes to them all along the way.
1: The Australian government wants to get 1,800 more PhD candidates to commercialise their work over the next decade, as part of a 2.2 billion Australian dollar university research commercialisation action plan. But turning PhD students and early career researchers into entrepreneurs is not a simple task. For starters, how do you identify the right people and train them to embrace a more commercial way of thinking? Nick McNaughton, CEO of PD Plus, which specializes in commercialisation services, has some ideas. PD Plus actually won the contract to manage the National Industry PhD program in February 2023 and has completed the first two rounds. Among other things, PD Plus uses a tool called the Curiosity Index to monitor and track an individual researcher's engagement over weeks, months and years and deploys targeted modules to guide them towards commercialization. Other countries are already keen to learn from this. PD Plus recently expanded overseas to upskill UK-based researchers. And the company has also expanded into New Zealand and has plans to enter the US and Canada in the coming years. In targeting these markets, which already collaborate on intelligence under the Five Eyes moniker, Nick hopes to tap into the growing awareness that emerging technologies like quantum computing, but also traditional industries like food and beverage, are national security concerns, where university researchers will play an important role. My name is Thierry Heles. Let's look beyond the breakthrough. Nick, welcome. Thank you, Thierry. I look forward to our conversation. And to start with, perhaps, can you give us a little bit of an overview of PD Plus?
0: Sure. PD Plus helps universities allow their researchers, their staff and their students to better understand the process of commercializing their unique ideas, discoveries, and inventions. We were originally founded in Australia. We actually operate under a different name in Australia. We operate under the brand Campus Plus there, but for various trademarking reasons, we operate under PD Plus in the UK. We work with every university across the country in Australia, and we've got a growing band of users here in the UK.
1: Amazing. We'll dive more into the history of the company, but perhaps you can give me a little bit of a sneak peek of what led you to founding the company.
0: So I, for the last 10 years, was running a venture capital fund for an Australian university. That university is called the Australian National University. And I was the CEO of their venture capital fund for 10 years. When I started there in 2013, it became clear That there was no pathway for a researcher to go on a journey towards, first of all, validating their idea, testing their idea with the market, finding funding for doing minimum viable products and testing, and then also actually being ready to pitch to a venture fund. So we spent the next three years developing an innovation ecosystem around the university, which included co-working, acceleration, translational funding, incubation, mentoring, and then obviously the venture capital side of things. And we found by having those support programs and those education programs, we were able to fast track a researcher or an inventor on that journey.
1: As I said, we will get back to more about what PD Plus does specifically as well. But first of all, perhaps let's take a look at the big picture here. Because Australia's innovation policy has changed quite a lot over the past few years, maybe especially so since Anthony Albanese became PM in 2022, a year and a half ago. Can you tell me a little bit about where Australia is at at the moment and what it's planning to do with its Australian Research Commercialisation Action Plan, as it's called?
0: I think we've all faced a very challenging three years, Thierry. We've had the global pandemic, we've had the war in Ukraine, we've had supply chain challenges. And we've begun to realise that technology is at the very core of our societies, whether it's producing vaccines that save us from a new virus or whether it is technology that allows us to protect our citizens in other ways. And so we've gone from 11 years of a government that really did not value science to a new government that has put science at the very core of the evolution of the Australian economy. And they see it as the foundation of every facet of creating new industries and creating the jobs of the future. And you rightly called their programme the University Research Commercialisation Action Plan, and I'm sure your listeners would be interested to hear a little bit about the facets of that. It's a $2.2 billion, 10-year programme, and it's really to fast-track and support Universities and research institutes, as they try to commercialize more of their unique ideas, discoveries, and inventions. And there's four or five, six components to it. The first component is called the Australian Economic Accelerator. That's a $1.6 billion commitment. And it's to provide funding for startups that are spinning out of research intensive institutions to provide them with some foundational funding. And it's a stage gate process. The ones that get through the first stage. Can apply for bigger amounts of money. So, first round is 500K, second round is $5 million. And there's 1.6 billion of the 2.2 has been allocated to that. The second component is called the Trailblazer Program. And this is really focused on six key national priority areas space, critical minerals, defense, food and beverage etc. And so the government is saying we really want to see ideas, discoveries and inventions in these national priority areas be supportive. And that program is over $350 million as well. The third component is the National Industry PhD program. Again, 10 years, the government wants to see 1800 more university industry focused PhDs in market. And it's a top up program for University led and industry led PhD programs. I should disclose to your listeners, Thierry, that actually our company in Australia, Campus Plus Australia, was awarded the contract to run that. We have so far completed two rounds with up to 80 awards being in market. But as I said, over the next decade, there's 1,800 of those awards coming into the market. Then there was another commitment to the CSIRO. So CSIRO is our national science institution. And they have a venture fund called Main Sequence, and 150 million dollars has gone to Main Sequence. And you may have seen recently that they just announced Fund Three, which takes them to a billion dollars of funds under management. And then the final component is another CSIRO program called the On Program, which is really an accelerator program to take researchers on an idea to Impact type of program, helping them to test their idea in a quick, fast way with industry prior to them going on to secure translational funding or venture funding. So the program is incredibly coherent. It's all aligned with each element. You're intertwined with each part of the program, depending on where you are in your commercialization journey. And it's proving to be a game changer in the country.
1: Yeah, those are considerable amounts of money to go into it. An 1800 PhD, that's not a small number, is it? Even if you think of it over 10 years. You've got quite a task ahead of you there.
0: Yeah, we do. But we're looking forward to it. We've obviously upgraded the capability on our team to do that. And already we're seeing very early positive signs of the industry collaboration that this funding program is starting to create. And that's exactly what the government wanted.
1: Yeah. Is there something else that you think could be done or should be done at this point? Or are you quite happy with the situation now?
0: Look, if you look around the world, you see both state and federal governments really investing in science and indigenous capability, domestic capability. We have also had the government announce the $15 billion National Reconstruction Fund. They've just appointed the CEO and the chair and the board of that. And what we're waiting for, Thierry, is we're waiting for what is going to be an eligible investment. And so I'm looking forward to hearing more from the federal government about what the National Reconstruction Fund is allowed to invest in. And I hope that it's allowed to invest in obviously things that are national priorities, but also things like fund of funds, downstream funds, and supporting more boutique venture funds that are either sector-focused or are geographically focused. So we're looking forward to hearing more about that.
1: Yeah. Speaking of funds then, some Australian pension funds like Hostplus, have already been investing in venture capital for a while. Hostplus is one of the returning backers in main sequence as well. And the UK, only this past July, finally agreed to invest at least 5% of pension assets into startups. How do you see that evolving in the next few years?
0: So I've been in the venture industry in Australia for a long time, 20 years, in fact.
1: And we have seen a complete
0: transformation, Thierry. So if you wind back to 2005, when the ANU fund was first incorporated, there was a handful of funds, less than 10 funds. Today, if you fast forward, there are over 270 registered uh, venture capital funders just in Australia. And you're right, you know, the Australian superannuation industry has now become a very significant supporter of venture capital. That wasn't always the case, Thierry. So, again, We've only seen that evolution of their thinking that, in fact, investing in deep tech, investing in advanced technologies is actually aligned with what a pension fund should be doing. They have a 50 year investment horizon. When you think about someone turning 18 today, starting their first job, it's 50 years before they're going to be wanting to draw down on their pension. So these asset managers have actually a very long time horizon. Venture, as you well know, is An asset class that's risky, but also takes time to mature. So let me give your listeners some context to the Australian landscape. So Australia actually has the fourth or fifth largest repository of pension funds on earth, not per capita, but on earth. We're actually a very small country, only 25 million people, but we have the fourth or fifth biggest repository of pension funds. And that's because we had compulsory pensions 30 years ago. So that's now 30 years. Of compulsory commitments from each employee in Australia going into one of these funds. Just before this call, I took a look at the top 20 funds. The 20th largest fund, Thierry, is over $10 billion of funds under management. The number one fund has $270 billion of funds under management. These are huge repositories of capital, and that capital has most recently started to be deployed into this class, which we call an alternative asset. So venture capital is in the alternative asset class. And you're right, Host Plus and Sam Cecilia has been really the pioneer in this. He's been doing this now for a decade. But I also had a quick look to see who was investing in venture. And out of those top 20, at least 10 of them are investing in Australian venture, and the other 10 have got exposure to global venture through Funds of Funds, And we're starting to see a change in terms of their interest and appetite for considering these more risky, longer term alternative assets. So I'm actually pretty optimistic about the Australian situation. Now, let's look at the UK context. I think that that change of legislation in July will unlock an enormous tsunami of capital being able to come into the sector here in the UK. The UK has always been very inventive. If you look back at the various industrial ages, Brits and the UK have been pioneers in many industrial revolutions. And I think that once again, you have this opportunity, this decade-long opportunity of becoming an innovation and technology powerhouse once again. So I'm very optimistic for the next decade for the UK.
1: That's really nice to hear, being in the UK. You recently expanded into the UK as well. You actually have an office here now. Why did you choose this market to expand into first? And what would you say are the commonalities between the two?
0: Obviously, there's the historical link between Australia and the UK that goes back 240 years and earlier. And obviously, we're still part of the Commonwealth. In fact, the king is still the official head of state in Australia, although many Australians don't realise that. But we do have a governor general who reports to the king, and they have the ability to govern if you like uh, but they rarely do that you know the king usually allows the prime minister of australia and the democratically elected government to operate uh, normally so we've got this 240 year bond we have strong sporting bonds backwards and forwards and we obviously since the brexit vote uk and australia are actually in very similar boats we're both island nations We're outside economic blocks, so we've faced challenges in recent years around not being part of an economic block. And I think that there's this great opportunity to rebuild the alliances that we had prior to 1973. And there's a lot of activity in this area, Thierry. So just over the last few months, Anthony Albanese came over and signed a free trade agreement between the UK and Australia. We have seen the higher education sector start to partner. Just two weeks ago, the group of eight, which is the top eight research intensive universities, signed a partnership agreement with the Russell Group. And also, we have seen the AUKUS deal being announced. So for those of your listeners who are not familiar with the term AUKUS, it's Australia, UK, US, and it's a defence pact. Specifically, it's around submarines. And obviously, in this modern era, you need to have defence capabilities that provide you with the best opportunity for defending yourselves. And that pact, that security pact, is a clear example that there is a security pact around the US, UK, Australia. And in fact, Campus Plus has expanded that to what is termed the five eyes market. So add on New Zealand, add on Canada. That's what's called the five eyes markets. And it's a security alliance. So we have decided that the next decade, Thierry, is going to be one where our destinies are very closely aligned and very closely aligned with those of Canada, New Zealand and the US. And we have decided that our business is literally focused on those five markets. So today, we're operational in Australia, the UK and New Zealand. You will see us operate at some point in the future in Canada and then America. So that's basically our plan. And why is that our plan? It's our plan because we believe that these scientific discoveries, they will come out of our domestic institutions, but in many cases like quantum computing or vaccines or whatever, You need to have global partnerships that allow you to bring together the ideas from different markets and different pattern families, etc. So we want to be part of this go forward plan, which is an alignment of the willing. And so we're going to be operational in all five markets.
1: Amazing. There are a few things in there that I am gonna pick up on, including the expansion into New Zealand. I wanna look another closer look at the UK for a moment though. What would you say are the differences? between the two countries? And what kind of government policies would you say the UK still needs to put in place?
0: So the UK is four times bigger than Australia in terms of higher education, there's 42 universities in Australia, there's 160 in the UK. I think the UK higher education sector, it's got great potential for commercialising and delivering impact from their unique ideas, discoveries and inventions. I do think that the universities that are sort of outside of the top 20. They are a little bit under-resourced here, Thierry, in terms of their commercialization capability. A typical TTO is under-resourced in terms of people. And those individuals that are there wear many, many hats, and they're pulled many, many different ways. I think over the next decade, the UK needs to look at how they can streamline the process of commercialization. I think modern technologies like podcasts and webinars allow us to provide in a frictionless way and a seamless way professional development for the masses. And that's really what PD Plus does. We provide professional development for researchers and research managers on scale, on mass, And we also provide universities with a way of identifying talented individuals. So our theory is that there are early career researchers in our communities who are thinking about commercialization. and Currently, they're being missed by the talent identification mechanisms that we're using. So I think we need to have a new way of finding them and then a systematic way of taking them, uh, fast tracking them through this journey towards a commercial outcome. So I'm very optimistic about the policy decisions that the UK is taking. Obviously, we're all waiting with bated breath either this week or next week to hear the results of the university spin-out review. That is an eagerly anticipated report. I think we're also interested to look at the various Connecting Capability Fund announcements, the Innovation Caucus announcement. There's many programs that the autumn and winter will reveal more about uh, the program and policies that the UK government is putting in place. Again, I'm optimistic from the conversations I've had that it will be right-sized and directed in the right areas, Thierry. So we've just got to wait a few more months until the picture becomes a bit clearer. But again, I'm very optimistic that you're going to see a decade of opportunity, and we're here because we want to be part of the community to help the sector achieve its full potential.
1: Definitely a good place, a good moment to be in this profession. You have already talked a little bit about New Zealand, but for listeners, it might be an interesting choice to move from Australia into the UK and New Zealand, but not have the US at the top of your list. So maybe if you allow me, why New Zealand?
0: Yes, good question. So New Zealand's a relatively small jurisdiction, but there are Very strong bonds between Australia and New Zealand, both from a sporting perspective, from a respect of our indigenous cultures through to academic and educational and security pacts. So we already have a very strong, close alliance with our Kiwi cousins. The Kiwi government decided that they would not restructure the higher education sector during COVID. So in Australia in 2020, you saw a huge restructuring of the sector. Regrettably, thousands of individuals lost their jobs as they tried to right-size the sector. Same thing happened here in the UK to a certain extent, but that didn't happen in New Zealand. So they're only just restructuring the higher education sector today. And regrettably, the commercialization teams have been seen as relatively easy targets for universities. They're not considered core business. I would argue they're absolutely core business. And so we've seen some incredibly capable and talented teams being let go from the higher ed sector in New Zealand. So we saw this as an opportunity, Thierry, and we've picked up a couple of incredibly capable people from Wellington Univentures, and they're going to be leading
1: Campus Plus in New Zealand for us. I look forward to following the New Zealand journey as well. I'm very interested in what's happening in New Zealand. I've never managed to visit, but it seems to be a country that is very much punching above its weight.
0: Just look at a company called Rocket Labs. So Rocket Labs, they're obviously a orbital launch provider. They are an innovator in space tech. They have completed 660 six orbital launches already. They had a failure last week unfortunately, but that's one of only three missions that they've lost out of 60 and they're an incredibly innovative and capable team. And so look at Xero. Xero is a New Zealand company. Most people here in the UK probably wouldn't realize that, you know, the accounting SaaS platform is from New Zealand. It is. So they're very inventive. They're very creative. And we have got a lot of faith that there is uh, great ideas right across uh, both islands of New Zealand.
1: Talking more about governments as well, what is your view of the sovereign capabilities in the markets that you're in now? And maybe if you want to talk about in the US and Canada as well?
0: We've had a mighty scare, Thierry. You know, the pandemic revealed us to be woefully unprepared in terms of caring for our citizens. And a government's primary responsibility is to keep our citizens safe and healthy. And I think globally, we had a hell of a scare. And Thank God for science and thank God for the hard, industrious people who've been beavering away in their labs for all of their lives, looking at how we can evolve vaccines and build vaccine platforms that allow us to get new vaccines in market within nine, 10 months of a new variant being uncovered. And science saved the world, Thierry. So let's be clear. Science saved the world and you don't often hear that. And we haven't heard that for many decades. And so. First of all, um, people's health governments have realized that science is at the core of protecting humanity. And then overlay on top of that the supply chain challenges that we had in our market in Australia. We have overextended just in time manufacturing. We've taken it to a point of self-risk. And once the boats and the containers stopped flowing from the global economy and stopped arriving in Australia, we suddenly realized, wow. We don't have an indigenous or domestic manufacturing capability anymore. We've given it up, you know, for just in time, the best price and the best delivery mechanism. And we've discovered that that's strategically naive. And so what we're finding now is that we have to rebuild our domestic manufacturing capability and we have to rebuild our capability of feeding clothing and housing our citizens and be less reliant on global providers. So I think you'll see that trend here in the UK. I think you'll see it in New Zealand and certainly in North America, where we will be rebuilding our domestic manufacturing capabilities. And actually, I think it's a great opportunity to take advantage of all of the advances right across manufacturing, whether it's software, hardware, robotics, AI, machine learning, et cetera. And it's a great opportunity for us to reinvent what advanced manufacturing looks like in our economies. So I actually think these scares that we've had, they were a good reality check for all of us to say, you went too far, you've put your citizens at risk, and now is the time to be more self-sufficient and self-reliant and to partner with countries that have the same sort of ideals in terms of democratic values and also views on global security. And we need to band together to make sure that our democracies do not get um, dismantled and our democracies do not fall foul of the dark powers that exist
1: in various parts of the world today. Yeah, and I think that is a crucial point to make when you say we need to be more self-reliant, but also band together because there is a danger of this veering into protectionism, which is the opposite of what you want, obviously.
0: Agreed. And that's why North America is so important to all of us, Thierry. So getting closer to the US and getting close to Canada is critical. And again, we have long historic bonds with that continent, North America. And it makes sense for us all to band together because we do have cultures and visions and views and values that are very aligned.
1: Following on from that, then, how does Supply chain mitigation fall into PD Plus's strategy. So we're here to help the inventors
0: of the future understand what their commercialization journey looks like. It doesn't really matter whether they come from arts, humanities, social sciences, or whether they come from quantum computing, physical sciences, etc. We really don't differentiate, Thierry. Our tagline is good ideas are everywhere. And what I delight in is the fact that we are one of the few global organizations that are looking in places that no one else is looking. I don't believe that the research intensive institutions on our planet should monopolize all of the good ideas. I simply don't believe that. I think that there are lots of applied technology inventions that we can come up with that are new and novel or take existing technology that can be applied in a new A novel way or in a new market. And those discoveries are typically coming from what I call the challenger universities. So we really focus on the challenger universities who don't have indigenous capability to be able to one, identify the talent and then take those individuals and teams on this journey. So to answer your question on supply chain, I think supply chain includes all facets of discovery and all facets of Products that we're delivering from, you know, source to market and beyond. And so I think that everything we do can assist with the improvement and protection of our supply chains and the optimization of those supply chains. A good example, by the way, is just the recent, you know, 5G innovation called narrowband internet of things. It's finally allowing the promise of massive Internet of Things to be realized. And you're starting to see the advanced mapping, if you like, of massive fleets where they all have sensors on them now. And you're able to track and optimize your supply chain in ways that you never were able to do before. Often these supply chains are dark and you don't actually know where your assets are and you make assumptions around where your assets are and what the temperature is and how many different transport steps they have, we're starting to get to a point where we're going to have real-time, well, we do have it today, real-time tracking of massive fleets, which allow the asset and fleet owners to really optimise what they're doing. So I'm pretty optimistic that the supply chain you know, 4.0 Is going to be very smart and provides efficiencies that we probably haven't thought about yet.
1: Yeah, and hopefully something that'll help us on the way to net zero as well, because if you actually understand your supply chain, it's much easier to identify where you need to improve and optimize.
0: Agreed. And if you can't measure, how can you manage it, Thierry? So I think these uh, smart sensors, which are becoming more pervasive because of 5G, are allowing us to basically properly identify and measure what our emissions are so that we can collectively as a civilization lower
1: them. We should talk more about PD Plus specifically as well. We've talked a lot about the big picture, which I think is very important, obviously. But how do you hope PD Plus will take advantage of these opportunities in the next decade? What are your specific products or plans that you have?
0: So we believe, Thierry, that we want to help Our academic institutions, our higher ed institutions and research institutes take a curious researcher who's thinking about a commercial or impactful journey. We want to take them on a logical journey that helps them at every decision point, at every stage as they go on that journey. So it's a webinar series. There's 20 webinars in the base series. And then we're starting to release sector specific webinars. So in the UK, we've got PD Plus Health on top of PD Plus, And it helps a researcher go on this whole journey from idea to a pitch to either a company, an industry partner, or a venture capital fund. And so we want to have the visibility to that individual because time always reveals the answer. What I learned at ANU Connect Ventures was time reveals the answer. And the longer you get to work with and interact with a talented individual, the better you understand what their idea is and the better you understand what the opportunity is, whether it's impactful or commercial. So we want to be able to track the individual. So we've developed a platform called Platform Plus. And whenever an individual, a researcher registers with us, it's the first moment that they interact with us. And obviously, we track them through the very journey that they go on if they register for one of our webinars and during the season there's about 30 of them so if they register for one of our webinars Thierry that's one level of curiosity but if they then bother to dedicate an hour of their time that's a even more stronger signal about curiosity they're dedicating time there's an opportunity cost for that hour that they're spending with us and each time they interact with us we get a better idea as to how curious they really are. So we've trademarked a phrase called the curiosity index. And we measure and monitor an individual as they go through this journey with us over weeks, months and years. And we're adding modules to this platform, which are specific for them at the particular moment in time. So at a certain point in time, you want to assess what sort of persona type the researcher is. Are they Passive, reluctant inventor, or are they active inventor and wanting to be involved? The sort of support and the sort of people you introduce them to is very different if they're, you know, an academic that wants to hand over their IP for someone else to commercialize, or if they're an academic that wants to be the CEO of the company when it spins out. You would treat those two individuals very differently. You would provide different programs to them all along the way. We're also planning on having a module called Mentor Plus which allows us at the right times to introduce industry-focused mentors to the individual as they go on this journey. And eventually, we'd love to have a fund at the end of that, which is a way in which we can invest in these unique individuals as they go on this journey. So I hope to have a chance to come back to you, Thierry, when we're ready to announce that venture fund. We're not ready yet. We're beavering away behind the scenes on it. But I hope to be able to come back to you to discuss that fund in more detail in a future episode.
1: Amazing. Good luck with that. Thank you. It really does sound like this is very much about a mass upscaling, like you're not looking to get 10 more startups out of the door. It's about the hundreds, if not thousands of researchers.
0: Already today, Thierry, in Australia, we have hundreds of researchers go through every webinar. We ran last week in the UK our very first PD Plus webinar for this season. It was called Basic Principles of IP and Commercialization. Really fantastic. I was able to sit and listen to the experts that presented. We had 21 universities on that. We had close to 80 researchers participated, and it was the very first one. So we know there's the market demand for this. We know that there's an appetite for it. And you're right, we don't just want to stop at hundreds of researchers. We want thousands of researchers to be able to participate in these professional development programs so that everybody has an opportunity to have the best chance of delivering impact for their discoveries or ultimately going on to do a commercialization journey.
1: You've already mentioned you were the CEO of ANU Connect Ventures before you set up PD Plus in 2020. You've also created the Griffin Accelerator. You were CEO of Blueco Ventures, chairman of Capital Angels. You founded a non profit co working space in Canberra, which I think is the biggest one. It is. Countless other career stops that you've had over the last 20, 30 years. You were in industry in the 90s, actually. How did you get interested in university innovation specifically?
0: I've been very fortunate in my career, Thierry, because it's led me to this moment having the best possible experience, network skills, credentials that allow me and my team to be able to realize this vision of PD And let me just explain what my career journey was. So in the 90s, I basically was a salesperson working for American technology companies. My specialty was taking startups that had early market traction in North America, and I would establish their Asia-Pacific operations from Japan all the way down to New Zealand. So that's how I ended up going to Asia. The very first gig I was sent out there by the software subsidiary of Apple at the time it was called Claris. Some of your listeners will remember Claris. Yeah. <laughs> Claris works, FileMaker Pro, MacWrite, MacDraw, Mac Project, etc. I was sent out to Hong Kong to set up their Asia operations and started to understand how this internationalization of technology worked. I then moved on during dot com one to a company called Allaire. They had a tool called Cold Fusion that became a global phenomenal and allowed people to not just create static web, but to have interactive websites, as we know today. And then I did a third one called Wiley Technology, which was Java performance monitoring and management. It doesn't really matter what the technology is. The important lesson I had, Thierry, was how do you grow ultra fast a technology business when it is a new technology wave? So there are technology waves hitting the beach all the time. And the question is, if you're someone like me, which of those technology waves do you get on? You know, as a surfer, I like to use the surfing analogy. If a surfer is sitting out uh, beyond the breakers, they can sit there and they can catch any wave. But the smart ones are the ones who wait for the wave that is going to get them all the way into the beach. So one of my insights from that first career was, okay, what is the technology wave that is coming? that is going to be big enough to sustain a whole industry as it moves forward. And so I learned about technology waves through that first gig. I also learned about making my number. You know, you have to have sales. If you don't have sales, you don't have revenue. If you don't have revenue, you don't have a company. So I was fortunate that those companies were successful. I had stock options and I was able to sort of pay off our house relatively early on. And I started my second career, which was as an angel investor. And I'm still a pretty active angel investor today. And the more deals I've done, the better I've got, because hindsight is a wonderful thing. And so I've had 25 years as an angel investor as well. To answer your question, that then led me into venture capital. So you mentioned Blueco Ventures. I was basically a scout for a Japanese private equity bank who was looking at deals in Australia. I was their scout making recommendations for them particularly proud of one of the companies that we back, which was called Windlab Systems, one of the very first wind and energy innovators to spun out of CSIRO, one of the first companies to spin out of CSIRO. Still going today, it was recently purchased by Andrew Forrest's uh, Squadron Energy. And so my whole career, Thierry, has led me to understanding how this commercialization process worked. And how did I get into the university sector? Well, Professor Mick Cardew-Hall, who used to be the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Innovation at the ANU, he had recently lost the CEO of ANU Connect Ventures, was looking for somebody to do it, and tapped me on the shoulder to come in and uh, work with him on that role. And I'm very thankful for that role because what it did was it allowed me to understand deeply how university commercialization works. And as I said earlier on the call, what I learned was there wasn't a playbook. There wasn't a process. There wasn't a program there. There wasn't the various funding in place to allow us to do that properly. Fast forward to today. It's there. Typically it's there all over the globe. But the key piece that is missing, Thierry, is talent identification. So the reason PD plus is doing what we're doing now is we are the last critical piece of the puzzle, which will allow The universities of the five eyes markets to be able to identify talented researchers at the earliest moment when they're thinking about commercialization. Often it's pre disclosure. They're educating themselves about what does commercialization look like? And so it's the very earliest moment that an individual thinks about going on this journey. And we want to identify them and capture them at that moment. Once we've identified and captured them, we work with the university to take them through our programs, their programs. We interact with the existing programs that are there. You're not going to see us run accelerator programs, Thierry. We're not going to run incubators. You know, the universities of the world are doing that very, very well. But we want to be a talent identification system for our partner universities to get more individuals going through their accelerators and incubators, etc. So The reason I'm really excited about where we are in this moment in history is because all of the stars are aligning for all of us. We've got governments who finally understand that science is going to be at the core of the evolution of our economies. We've got new industries that are going to be created, and those will create the jobs of the future. We're able to use technology to keep our citizens healthy and fed, but also protected, and It ultimately protects our democracies as well. So this is a unique moment in time for all of us. You mentioned earlier on the call, Thierry, that you believe that this is a great moment in time. I'm seeing the British government doing exactly the right things. We just have to wait for their policy announcements to come out and the funding programs to be released. But I'm extremely optimistic that the next decade we'll see all of the markets we're operating in become incredibly advanced. There'll be advanced technologies and our countries will be known primarily as advanced technology hubs in the future. I fervently believe that.
1: That would be a really nice place to be in. Yeah. I find it quite interesting that you mentioned that you identify the talent pre-disclosure as well, because I think a lot of TTOs out there probably only really interact with the researchers once they have made a disclosure. So, being able to figure out where those people are even before that stage is helpful, I think, and quite unique as well.
0: I would agree. The old days of going and having coffee one on one with a researcher, it simply doesn't scale, Thierry. You know, look at some of the larger universities here in the UK. You know, Leeds has got 10,000 researchers. It's impossible. It doesn't matter how many people they have in their TTO, they cannot possibly understand what all 10,000 of those researchers are thinking at any moment in time. And the tenured professor is not the person that is going to want to step out from their faculty or school and do a startup. They've got too much to lose. They've got their academic rankings, they've got their academic status, and they've got security, right? Financial security. So why would you risk all of that to go and do a startup? The people who are going to do this are early career researchers. They've grown up with mobile phones. You know, the iPhone arrived in 2007. The generation of ECRs that we have on our campuses today are incredibly technically literate. They've had a decade worth of hearing about startups and incubators and venture capital, et cetera. It's not new. And so they've been immersed in this thinking, which is you can be an entrepreneur. And so we're particularly focused on helping to identify these ecrs who have a very very challenging grant income and and income status that they operate in it's never been harder to secure research funding for an ecr and we're an alternative for them so an alternative is let's have a look at your idea let's test it let's talk about it and let's see if this is something that could go on an impact or a commercialization journey They don't have anything to lose because they're not tenured, they're on short-term contracts typically, and so this is actually a very attractive pathway for them. So I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the dawn of a new generation of people with great ideas be willing to take the risk of going on that journey. There's never been more capital in the system, Thierry. There's never been more angel funds. You've got EIS and SEIS here in the UK. There's formal angel groups in all of the markets that we operate in. They're very sophisticated. There's lots of venture capital. There's lots of money. Money is not the issue. (laughs) Having the good ideas with someone who is trained in the journey that they're going on and a systematic way of testing whether their idea is the best idea it could be, that's what we're missing. And so that's why PD Plus is focused and Campus Plus in Australia and New Zealand. That's why we're focused on. The talent identification and the fast tracking of taking an individual on this commercialization journey.
1: Building on that, then perhaps if you had a magic wand, is there something that you would change about university innovation today? Or are you quite happy to be able to take advantage of it commercially? I think
0: the top tier universities are very competent in terms of the commercialization capability that they've got, the people they've got, the processes and the programs. Where we're letting our sector down, Thierry, is in the challenger universities. So in Australia, it's outside the group of eight. Here in the UK, you could argue that some of the universities that are in the lower echelons of the Russell group, but certainly anything that's outside of the Russell group, 20 through 90, they just don't have the resources or the capability to do the commercialization process and activity on mass at scale in a good way. So I would love to see, and I've been lobbying various governments around the world, that the universities that are challenger universities, let's have a centralised body that does the commercialization for you. So let's have a national capability, an outsourced technology transfer. So you've got a single programme layer that everybody in the country goes through, and we don't have each institution creating their own programme we can do it nationally and it should be delivered as a national program. Online is fine now in the higher ed sector. So, you know, we've learned through COVID that it's perfectly okay to do work and learning the way you and I are conversing today, Thierry. So I would really like to see some thought on whether we can optimize the way technology transfer is done for the challenger universities in all of the markets that we operate.
1: Yeah, whether nationally or open. maybe even just regionally, if you look at something like the French did t- with the SATs. Because some economies, the US will be probably too big to do it on a national scale. Yeah. Agreed. I think, uh, you know, if you
0: look at Set Squared, you look at Midlands Forge, you look at the Northeastern Accelerator, you look at Northern Gritstone, those alliances, they're very, very effective. And I think those models are ones that we can adopt and replicate. Thierry, uh, in Scotland, obviously, they've got alliances there as well. So yes, I think regional. Alliances make a lot of sense with a programme layer that is a national programme layer delivered locally. I think there's some logic in that.
1: What is something that you wish the public knew about university innovation? I
0: wish they knew in their communities, walking around the streets, they've got these incredible individuals who have changed the destiny of humanity. Look at our sports stars, Thierry. They're lauded for their physical abilities for heading a ball or kicking a ball or running. I wish we could celebrate our scientists in in a way that puts them up on the same sort of pedestal that our sports stars are. In many respects, it's just crazy that we celebrate physical abilities rather than mental abilities. And I think we can do more to celebrate them. I was very touched after COVID that the lady from Oxford who was the one who is credited with uh, discovering the vaccine. She was at Wimbledon and uh, she was given a standing ovation. And I thought that was just lovely that uh, people realised that she and her team had made a big difference to civilization And
1: why can't we do that every week? Yeah, Dame Sarah Gilbert. I don't think she listens to this, but we'll give her a shout out anyway. <laughs> 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 what is a professional challenge that you have overcome in your career?
0: Uh, suffocating bureaucracies. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I do think, and I'm not going to name institutions, Thierry, but I think the way we organise ourselves and our institutions, we really need to look at things and in particular in our sector, IP policies, right? <laughs> so IP policies, let's get consistency around IP Universities should not be holding on to the IP they should be allowing it to run free get into the open world have modest expectations of equity holdings uh, over the life of a, a spin out or a license let's get the great ideas out as quickly as we can i've been involved with negotiations that have taken years literally years and it really should be resolved either with a single policy or an adult conversation around what is realistic. And so we have to think about this misaligned view of the value of IP at the very first moment that it's disclosed, through to the chance of it actually being valuable in 10 years time. I'd I'd really like us to put some thought into that, because it is a handbrake on everything that we're doing at the moment.
1: You have it in the US, the US Bolds, or the USID Guide in the UK. So there are tech transfer offices and venture capital firms that have sat together and butted heads for six months to come up with something that is agreeable for everyone. So there are definitely initiatives, but yeah, we need to have them on a much bigger scale.
0: Agreed. Look, the USIC guide is fantastic. I've been uh, showcasing it in the markets that we operate outside of the UK and uh, all credit to the academic institutions and the venture funds and the legal firms that came together to do that. It's a very valuable piece of work.
1: We are sadly almost out of time. Is there anything else that you wanted to share before we say goodbye.
0: Look, a little promo, Thierry. I hope you don't mind.
1: No, and go for it.
0: Here in the UK, we're just getting started, and so we've decided that we're providing complimentary access to all of our PD plus webinars between October and December. To secure that access, you just have to email Ben at PDplus.co.uk. So I'll say that again, Ben at pdplus.co.uk and Ben will organise complimentary access for you and your institution.
1: Amazing. I'll put Ben's details in the show notes as well, so people can easily find them. Thank you, Thierry.
0: May I just say, Global University Venturing is such an important institution. What you're doing is exactly at the right moment in history. So I'd like to thank you and uh, Jim and everybody for doing what you do.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Nick. It was partially luck and partially Jim's visionary leadership. And I got lucky coming on board at the same time. But thank you. That's really nice to hear. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been really great.
0: Thank you, Thierry. And farewell listeners.
1: Beyond the Breakthrough is hosted by me, Thierry Healers. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. The podcast is produced by Global University of a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university on linkedin as global university venturing and on twitter as GU Venturing. You can reach me directly at teheles at globalventuring.com that's t-h-e-l-e-s at globalventuring.com. If this is your first time listening make sure to hit that subscribe button and go peruse our archive of more than 100 episodes. If you're already a fan why not make sure to share this podcast with your colleagues? If you've already done that, thank you. And thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back next Friday, when we will be talking to Professor Susie Speller from the University of Oxford about superconductors. Here is a little sneak peek of that conversation.
2: The Centre for Applied Superconductivity was set up a number of years ago now in Oxford with the real aim to work with the local industry in superconductors, of which there are a lot around Oxfordshire. We have a number of different companies who make superconducting magnets, for example, or use superconductors in a variety of ways. And what we found through our interactions with them was that there's quite a lot of problems that they didn't have the R&D capability or the expertise to tackle themselves. So it's sort of pre-competitive research, but in topics that they need to get answers to to develop their business. And this is really amazing for scientists to be able to work so closely with industry because what we want to do is to make our science applicable to the real world and to get our science and what we're researching actually out there and into products. So if we're working on problems that industry really have and really want to know answers to in collaboration with them, then we can feel that we're really making an impact.